Positive Radio. 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. It is in community conversation with Clayton because right now and during COVID-19, we've been opening up the lines on 1300 777 899 for you to ask our guests. And really, in one sense, we've got no greater guests, especially here in Victoria at the moment, than the Chief Health Officer, uh, Professor Brett Sutton, joins us on the line. You can ask him a question. 1300 777 899. Brett, thank you so much for giving up so much of your time to answer questions tonight. My pleasure, Clayton. Good to be on. Uh, look, it's wonderful to have you here. We must start, Brett, by saying, uh, as we um, put it out on our social media this week, that you'll be joining us and that you're going to be a part of the, the program. We had heaps of people asking questions, as I'm sure you'd imagine they would, but there was also just a ton of people uh, wanting to say thank you so much. Uh, and a few of the comments quickly. My comment is simple. Thank you to him. I think you're doing an amazing job, Brett. Um, Joanne says, I don't have a question. I just wanted him to know that I've been praying for him every day since the pandemic started and I will continue to. Uh, Natalie said, look, I know they cop a bit of flack sometimes. Please let him know we're praying for them. Emily, thanks for all the work you're doing. So there's plenty of people who want to say uh, thank you so much. So we, we might start with that, Brett. Thank you very much for the, the work you and your team have been doing. Oh, thank you. Um, and it's lovely to hear. And I'll certainly accept those thanks on behalf of the team because they are working uh, super hard and, and I think they're doing a fantastic job. So uh, it's... it's um, taken with much gratitude really appreciate it oh a- absolute pleasure and it is a wonderful job the the work you've been doing i'm guessing you're probably not having too much sleep of recent times either not really obviously we've got um some significant challenges you know right now um, we're not unique in the world in that regard but it, it it's made us very busy uh, and we're throwing absolutely everything we've got at um the current surge in cases so yeah. uh yeah it's long days and uh complex work but um it's got to be done yeah. Um, first question, I suppose, from me is we, we are going to open up the line, so get your calls in, one three hundred triple seven eight double nine for uh, Brett Sutton. He's the Chief Health Officer here in Victoria. Um, the first question for me would really be a, a bit around those spikes, uh, Brett. Uh, have we done something wrong? Did, did we you know, loosen restrictions too fast? Did we Have people been disobeying basic sort of principles? Or, or is this sort of how a pandemic can work that we've seen our spike? Do, do you have a, sort of an answer to that or do you not necessarily worry about how it is, just what we need to do? It's, it's certainly not unexpected. The, this is the challenge around the world. We're four and a half months in from this starting in most places and um, it, it's genuinely super challenging to maintain the restrictions that we've had in place. We were never going to have a lockdown that just carried on for months and months and months at the levels that we had uh, in late March and April because that's that's impossible. It uh, kills the economy. Uh, even more jobs would have been lost, even more struggles with people's uh, psychological health and, and wellbeing. So um, we had to go to an easing and we had to balance this um, really expected uptick in cases with trying to move to a more normal way of life but you know that that's the challenge in europe at the moment that's seeing a, a rise in cases it's the challenge uh across most of the world some places are going uh, into their first wave just now because they've been relatively isolated from uh you know some of the international uh, routes for for travelers um or otherwise isolated but almost everywhere is is facing this dilemma of uh, how do you open up and balance the increase in cases and managing them uh, with, you know, the the need for people to move towards some kind of normal life uh, because it has such profound implications to be shut down forever. 
Mm. Uh, so, you know, that's where we find ourselves. The, the, the few countries that haven't had to face this have eliminated it. Um, we, we never took that path and, and we're not there now. Uh, I think one of the particular challenges for Victoria is that in parts of the country where they never had as many cases... Um, they effectively have eliminated it and so they've lifted as if they've um, done so. And, of course, Victorians are looking out and seeing sport take off and mm. pubs and clubs and uh, uh, casinos open. Uh, and so, of course, they're, they're wondering um, at what phase they're in and, and whether they shouldn't be going back to a normal life as well. I guess my, my cautionary message is uh, it's not over in Victoria. In Victoria's cases or Australia's cases, we have to hold the reins, really, because um, this will take off if we just act as if um, there's no transmission going on. Yeah. Now, we've got questions coming through. We're about to get to those. Just before we do, could you perhaps uh, explain to us a little bit how it does work? Uh, you're the Chief Health Officer. Uh, do you decide, all right, well, restrictions are in, or do you advise uh, the Premier or, or the Cabinet and then they make the decisions? Can you just take us on a little bit of the, the journey around these sorts of things, uh, of the role that you're actually playing in your team? Sure. Yeah. Look, I've got a I've got a, a big and fantastic team. There's a lot of uh, inputs that come in on this. There are uh, individuals who are trying to work up policy with uh, sectors and industries about how they manage the risk, uh, and if they're opening, in what way they would do so, what constraints we would legally put on them, what constraints we would put from a guidelines or policy perspective. Um, there, there's an entire intelligence team that's looking at the numbers. Uh, there are modellers who are looking at what are the effects of lifting in this area, what are the effects of on transmission if we were to have, um, uh, you know, um, a density measure of this size or a, a cap of this number or this industry open up. So they're all inputting into me. Uh, I'm having conversations with um, Minister Makarkos, the Health Minister and the Premier, obviously, um, but essentially writing a paper with all of our reflections on the current state of play, all of the uh, intelligence on our epidemiology and current cases, um, and providing some advice to Crisis Council of Cabinet, which is the key ministries um, involved in this. They reflect on it. They have their own stakeholders to engage. They've got their own uh, reflections to bring to it. And I guess it, it goes back and forth between uh, Cabinet and the public health team around um, how it might land in law. Um, I've got significant powers as Chief Health Officer under the State of Emergency uh, and I delegate to my Deputy Chief Health Officer to, to write them into law um, and uh, Annalise has, has done so. She's got to be satisfied that um, it's the right thing to do. She, can, she doesn't do it just uh, because she's told to. She has to mm. um, be happy that they're, they're proportionate and realistic and evidence-based uh, and reasonable. So... Uh, that's essentially how it happens, but it's not it's not one person's view alone. It's it's a lot of people going back and forth on a really complex uh, issue. Yeah, one three hundred triple seven eight double nine to have a chat to uh, Brett Sutton. He is the chief health officer here in Victoria. We're going to start with Ian in Narrewarren North. Ian joins us on the line. Uh, Ian, you're on with Brett. Yeah, look, uh, my question to Brett, I suppose, relates to the testing that we're doing. Um, it would appear that most people who are tested positive uh, for COVID-19 um, either have no symptoms or they develop mild symptoms similar to a cold or flu and it really seems to be mostly the people with pre-existing conditions and um, other illnesses that uh, end up requiring hospital care. 
Um, but the basis, it appears that the basis for locking down our state and placing restrictions on movement, um, closing businesses and, and affecting the economy and so on is based on the infection rate, which in turn is, seems to be directly based on a number of positive tests. Therefore, my question is, uh, can you tell me what test is being used? And if it is the RT-PCR test, um, as suggested on TGA website, can you explain why this test, which uh, from my analysis would appear to be quite inaccurate, um, is used to conduct all this social engineering on the people of Victoria and the world for that matter? Well, yeah, we, we are um, identifying confirmed cases on the basis of the real-time PCR test. It's the one that's been validated through our own reference laboratory uh, and a uh, um, uh, uh, leading laboratory in the Southern Hemisphere, indeed globally, at the Doherty Institute. Those confirmed cases tell us how many uh, likely cases we have in Victoria and what we know from uh, this taking off in a whole bunch of other countries around the world is that one individual, um, unless you make uh, changes to the way that people interact, would infect two and a half individuals in a, in a generation of transmission. Those two and a half individuals would, would each infect another two and a half. And so that's uh, how it's taken off um, in the initial stages in Wuhan in China. Uh, that's kind of how it takes off until you bring in uh, some of those measures that create a distance between people that reduce the risk of uh, transmission. So it's the number of people that you would come into contact with and it's the um, the closeness that you come into contact with people. And, and we saw through the uh, restrictions on international travel that we stopped seeding Victoria and Australia from all of the cases that were occurring overseas. But we needed that additional measure of physical distancing uh, in order to really drive cases down because there were already uh, chains of transmission occurring and um, that would have taken off exponentially. It would have taken off as is uh, occurring in uh, India and Brazil and Arizona and Texas and Florida right now uh, if we hadn't come in with those measures that reduce the number of people that we come in contact with and, uh, and you know, set some standards for those settings um, and shut down some settings so that people weren't mixing very closely together. The mass gatherings, the... Um, you know, the, the uh, indoor and outdoor uh, gatherings of people where they come into close contact. We had to do that uh, in order to get that reproduction number down below one so that cases would be driven down, as, as indeed happened right through April, May uh, until now. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ian, and thank you, uh, Brett. We've got Trevor on the line as well, Trevor in Baronia. Trevor, you're on with oh, Brett. Yeah. Oh, OK. Hello. Hi. Hi, how are you? Look, I'm, I'm um, that's good. Look, oh. I work at North Ring Uniting Church as a children's and family um, person. Tre Trevor, we and might we might just get you quickly. Could you just turn your radio down just for a second, and then we'll we'll get you back again, um, and okay. uh, we won't won't have the, the echo back. Good on you, Trevor. Th thanks for that. Okay. Oh. Yeah, okay. There we are. Sorry. That's... Go for it. Yep. Okay. Look, I work at um, North Ring Uniting Church in the children's and family. Um, role and look I, I just rang up just we, we have got quite a few people in our congregation that are 70 plus and they are most concerned about how long it could possibly be before it will be safe enough for the 70 plus to um, mingle with some of the younger people Great uh, and to get back to normal worship you know in a worship space sort of yeah. Great question yeah, thank you. Look, 
And a really tricky one to answer. I, clearly, um, uh, Victoria's got the most cases in Australia at the moment, uh, but relative to the rest of the world, um, it's, it's still very rare. You know, we're getting 40 positive cases uh, a day out of about 20,000 tests, so one in 5,000 positive, and, and those 40 cases are probably the majority of all of the new cases that are occurring every day uh, across the state. We're doing such uh, extensive testing that um, that's probably the, you know, close to the, the real figure. Um, so it's still pretty exceptional to come across someone who might be positive. Um, but you're right, people who are 70 plus or uh, 65 with a chronic illness um, are at genuine risk of more severe disease. And uh, I can't make a judgment really for, for those individuals about um, you know, wh whether they should be in a space with um, other people uh, in close contact where they might be at risk of uh, getting the disease. Um, but we are playing a long game here and, uh, you know, the, the so-called shielding strategy um, is really meant to be through the, the peak of um, the epidemic and, um, you know, it's not something that any of us imagines that people can do for six months, 12 months, 18 months or however long it might take to develop a vaccine. So I think, you know, people will make their own choices about when they um, start mingling more with younger population or, or more broadly. Um, but there are always things that you can do to mitigate your risk around uh, not touching your face, washing your hands very regularly uh, when you're out with others, making sure you're not uh, hugging and kissing and shaking hands and keeping that one and a half metre distance um, to the fullest extent possible uh, and if you have to be in really close contact with others, uh, then it's not unreasonable to consider wearing a mask as well. So I wouldn't say, you know, close yourself off um, uh, from here on in uh, because it could be 12 months, 18 months before we have a vaccine. I think people make their own judgments, but uh, to always bear in mind those things that you can do to, to try and reduce that risk of um, getting infected yourself. Thank you so much, Trevor. Appreciate that. We Sort of on the back of Trevor's question, uh, Brett, we've had a couple of people texting through just as we've been talking saying um, we should go into the, the full lockdowns again from what they're seeing of these spikes over the last uh, couple of weeks. It seems like from what your answer was there with Trevor, that's not something that it sounds like you're, you're, you're anticipating. Am I reading that right or, or is that always an, a possibility? I guess it's always a possibility. I, I would hate to have to do it yeah. um, and that's why I'm urging in as clear... Uh, as possible um, terms to say it's not over yet for Victoria. Um, we know the things that work. Those are the things that we've been saying all the way along, which is um, stay away from others uh, to the extent that you can for now to get that transmission down. Uh, wash your hands, cough into your elbow, uh, and um, if you're unwell at all, even with mild symptoms, uh, then stay home, get tested, uh, get that result back um, and, and be cleared before you're out and about again uh, if you've got those mild symptoms. So I think, you know, it, we know that we can avoid it. Um, a lockdown, a further, uh, you know, really significant constraint on our lives, uh, but it needs everyone to be pulling in the same direction, it needs uh, really good cooperation across the entire population. That is a challenge when we're four and a half months in from this um, because... The, the fatigue with behaviours is entirely understandable. We've all done so well so far uh, and we all want to get back to a normal way of living, um, but it is something that, that's going to be a requirement uh, if we um, want to avoid this taking off uh, exponentially because that's what will happen 
with such an infectious virus if we can't do all of the things that are required to suppress that transmission. My guest is Professor Brett Sutton. He's the Chief Health Officer here in Victoria and as we've been hearing is uh, tasked with the responsibility of ensuring that we're as safe as we can and making these tough decisions uh, in light with his whole team uh, around COVID-19. We're going to have more of your questions on the way next. You can phone through one 777 and we're going to specifically talk about these hotspots that are coming up uh, in just a couple of minutes' time but we are also open up to any question that you might want to ask one 877 Back with Professor Sutton in 90 seconds. In conversation with Clayton. 89.9 The Light. Positive Radio. This is In Conversation with Clayton. You can ask your question of the Chief Health Officer of Victoria, Brett Sutton, Professor Brett Sutton, joining us uh, for the hour, and we're so appreciative of your time once again, Brett. Um, a couple of things we want to ask. Uh, obviously, over the past little while there's been this spike in certain suburbs around Melbourne. It seemed like at the start there was a lot of talk of councils as hotspots and now it seems to sort of have changed to more suburbs. Am I reading that right as I'm sort of hearing that, that the focus has sort of narrowed in that way? Yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, we, we knew that uh, um, entire local government areas, councils weren't uh, affected in the same way. Um, but that was the initial uh, kind of case count that we had uh, and how the information had been captured. But we did some work in digging down to exactly where those cases were within the local government areas. Uh, and so we've named some suburbs um, in part to focus people's attention on, on where the risk really sits. Uh, it's certainly not to say that, you know, uh, if you're outside those suburbs uh, and within the local government area or even outside that, uh, that you don't need to think about testing if you're symptomatic. You absolutely do. Um, but we want the message to really focus on those suburbs that we know uh, are hotspots at the moment with, you know, a, a dozen or more cases in some of them. Yeah. Uh, so it's really about focusing the mind, making sure that those people there uh, get tested and are particularly mindful of the things we're saying about physical distancing and, and hygiene measures. Yeah, there's been a bit of travel about sort of uh, travelling in and out of suburbs or council areas as well. Is that something? I mean, I know that's not been sort of officially um, given down. I was chatting to somebody today who was saying, "Look, I, I sort of want to do the right thing, but I'm, I'm getting a little bit confused. Am I not allowed to travel to a council? But I know it's not actually that suburb, and and I sort of around this one and that one there. It, it must be so confusing for everybody and for you to to give that clear understanding as things keep changing, but. How do you actually want people to be moving in and out of, of suburbs and, and councils and things like that? Look, it, it is difficult. Um, we're basically saying those suburbs aren't shut down. Um, the people who uh, live there or work there um, can continue uh, to move around as they are required to. I guess the message for the whole of Victoria is uh, don't make unnecessary trips uh, if you can avoid them. Um, that's especially the case for... Um, uh, you know, shopping, if you can do it online, visiting extended family or friends, if you don't have to, uh, or if you can make sure that you're visiting a regular um, uh, family member or a regular friend, uh, you know, once a week rather than a different friend or a different family member every single day. Um, but moving across Melbourne, moving into these areas, that's okay. I think if people are sensible, if they understand the things that they know they need to do to keep their distance, um, then they're, they're not going to be at risk. We know that the transmission that we're seeing uh, is basically occurring as people are um, inadvertently sometimes um, mixing with other people 
um, in close contact, sometimes before they've developed symptoms, sometimes with very mild symptoms. And so that's the main thing to be aware of, I think, for everyone, that if you're unwell, if you've got a family member who's unwell, uh, then they, they, they shouldn't be getting out and about. They should be getting tested and getting that result. Yeah. Uh, Michelle asks a question, uh, Brett. Uh, I'd like to ask why face masks haven't been introduced as a requirement when out in public, especially in light of the latest outbreaks. Your, your answer to that, we've obviously seen over in the States that that's been highly encouraged, um, but it, not necessarily here in, in Victoria. Yeah, I guess the difference is um, in Australia, even at the at the peak of this, we had about 400 cases per day. Um, the US is getting 40 plus thousand cases per day uh, in areas where they've got very intense transmission. Um, you know, they've got one in five people who test uh, testing positive. We've got one in 5,000. So um, there, there are much lower levels of transmission. And I guess the World Health Organization made its recommendation for masks really uh, in those settings with, with pretty high levels of transmission. That's what's been uh, advised from the national expert group on this. Um, but for me in Victoria, I, I'm reflecting on it. I, um, I don't want to go against the national advice, um, but I do want to uh, see if we can uh, use masks in a way, not, not mandated, not universal necessarily, uh, but in a sensible way in some areas where we've seen more significant transmission because I want every tool that we've got mm. uh, to help us manage the, the risk. So it might be in settings where, you know, we know people are probably going to be closer than one and a half metres, marketplaces, some retail settings, um, public transport potentially where, um, you know, it is going to add another level of protection. But I don't think mandating it uh, is a proportionate measure necessarily. But I think um, we can and, and probably should um, provide advice on... Uh, um, those settings where people are going to be in close contact and yeah. if they're going to choose to wear a mask, we want to give some appropriate advice on the kind to wear and how to wear it. Yeah. Uh, and, and is that something that you will officially be doing at, at some point? Yes, I think so. I think um, we're working up some communications now and, uh, as I say, as soon as we've landed um, advice that's clear and consistent, uh, then that's the appropriate time to, to get the word yeah. out. Wonderful. one three hundred triple seven eight double nine to have a chat to Brett Sutton, the uh, Chief Health Officer here in Victoria. Jeremy from Wonturna South has done just that. Jeremy, you're on with Brett. Oh, fantastic. I really appreciate you uh, putting up this uh, slot tonight to be able to ask a question. Um, a question for the Chief Health Officer then is, I'm a carer for my mum. I have been for the last 10 years. Mum is 88 um, I do part-time work and I also go out and do some shopping for mum and everything like that. As a lot of carers around the state, I'm sure, do, whether it's their elderly mother or father or someone who's medically uh, quite vulnerable. But my scenario is this. If, uh, if I inadvertently was to have uh, catch the virus, I really feel like I don't want to put my mum in jeopardy. Um, so what should I do? I think the main thing is is to take heed of the advice that we're giving everyone. You, you'll minimise your risk if you uh, try and minimise your exposure to other people in the community. So uh, if you can keep uh, your one and a half metre distance uh, to the extent possible, if you make sure that you're not visiting um, a number of people unnecessarily and trying to keep that to a minimum uh, and making sure that if you, if you see uh, someone with a cough or a cold uh, or runny nose, um, then, uh, you know, politely say, look, I can't visit you. 
um, you can't come to my home, uh, it, it's a risk uh, unless you've been tested and, and cleared. So I think there are things that you can do for yourself, obviously at the first sign of illness that you've got, um, to make sure that you're getting tested uh, and getting a result back before you carry on with uh, caring. But even in the process of caring, um, you know, it's, it's not the case that everyone who um, develops illness will transmit to those around them, even if they're in close contact. Um, and, uh, and hand washing, uh, trying to get away from the habit of touching your face, they're all things that uh, can help reduce uh, the risk of either you getting it or indeed passing it on to anyone else, wiping down uh, high-touch surfaces with a, a disinfectant-based um, cleaner um, is also, you know, a, a good way to manage risk if you happen to um, be developing uh, illness and, and you haven't got symptoms yet. Um, so no easy answer. There's lots of complex uh, things at play there, but um, it, it's really following that, those key bits of advice that we're giving everyone about managing their own risk. Yeah. Thank you, Jeremy. We appreciate that. Uh, Brett, we've got a question from Rhiannon who says, do you expect schools to close again at some stage? Oh, again, impossible um, <laughs> to make predictions on this. I think, you know, clearly um, we closed schools on the basis that we uh, wanted to make sure that it was, um, that we were driving community transmission down to a point where it was okay to open them. Uh, we're seeing that transmission come up again. But I think on the on a reassuring front, uh, even though we've seen cases in schools, clearly we've seen cases in schools, cases in childcare, those cases are acquiring their illness uh, in family settings and then they're turning up to school as a case. But when we close those schools, we um, put all of their classmates in quarantine, they're all getting tested and we're really not seeing them um, become unwell. So we're not getting confirmed cases uh, in the classmates in the close contacts of children. So it really does seem to be the case that kids don't um, tend to pass it on to others. Yeah. I think that's very reassuring for yes. being confident that schools can probably open um, without being a driver of transmission and without being uh, you know, part of a cause of uh, an uptick in cases. But while we've got community transmission, you know, we will um, see cases occurring in schools because, of course, kids get it at home um, if they're going to school. Um, they'll they'll turn up and we'll see those cases in school. Yeah, one three hundred triple seven eight double nine to ask your question of uh, Brett Sutton, the chief health officer here in Victoria. Tanya asked the question, Brett, um, why is someone who tests positive to COVID nineteen legally required to quarantine for fourteen days, and yet no one else the person lives with is legally required to, unless they have tested positive as well? She sort of goes on to say, it seems like wouldn't this be an easy way to actually have community transmission occur? So the legal requirement, um, so firstly, isolation is when you're a case, when you're unwell sure. and you're confirmed positive. Quarantine refers to someone who's well uh, but has been exposed to someone else, so a, a close contact. Um, quarantine needs to occur for 14 days because that's the length of time that somebody might develop illness in. Um, and so all of the close contacts of people that we find in the community are required to quarantine at home for 14 days um, there is a legal um, uh, direction that applies to them and there is a penalty that applies if they break quarantine. So those um, penalties can be applied and people can be fined um, if, they're, if they're not doing the right thing in home quarantine. For the hotel uh, system, which is everyone arriving internationally, we kind of assume that they're all exposed by what's going on overseas. Um, they're required to quarantine for 14 days in hotels. So... Um, 
essentially everyone uh, who requires quarantine needs to do it for 14 days and everyone who's a, who's a case needs to uh, remain isolated until they're cleared and that's either 10 days um, uh, minimum uh, plus being free of symptoms uh, in the last days uh, and, and then they're, they're free to move about in the community as well. So, you know, it's slightly uh, stricter policy for international travellers, uh, but there are laws for people in the community as well. I wouldn't want to see everyone who's a close contact in the community uh, put in a hotel um, compulsorily because I think people would simply stop turning up for testing. They'd wonder whether they would be sending their brothers and sisters, parents uh, into, into forced quarantine as close contacts and, and we wouldn't be finding the cases that we're finding in the community. We need people's engagement and their willingness to come forward for testing. So it is a, it is a balancing act between you know, the kind of uh, penalties that might apply for people who don't cooperate, yeah. uh, but absolutely getting people uh, encouraged and feeling free to step up to get tested. Yeah, absolutely. one three hundred triple seven eight double nine. if you'd like to ask the Chief Health Officer of Victoria a question. We've got Tristan from The Patch joining us. Uh, great to have you on, Tristan. You're on with Brett. Oh, thanks, Clayton. Hi, Brett. How are you going? Good, Tristan. How are you? Oh, good, thanks. Hope you're uh, managing to rest up okay during this uh, busy time. Yeah, come sick off. I've got a question. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I've got a question, uh, and, and that is with regard to quarantine, but you might have just touched on it. Uh, is, is it right that if somebody, if one person in a household tests positive, that not everybody has to quarantine in that house? And, and I suppose just to clarify, we are talking about isolation, as you've just determined there as well. Yeah, sorry, yes, yes. what we're talking about, yeah. Yeah, so, so the individual who tests positive in the house is, is the case and needs to isolate for, for 10 days or until cleared. Um, Usually, we would regard everyone in that house as a close contact. The, the definition of a close contact is anyone who's had more than 15 minutes face-to-face -face contact uh, or um, anyone who's spent two hours in the same room. So, in essence, um, that's going to be everyone in your household. There might be circumstances, though, where, where someone uh, lives down a um, corralled area of the house who says, oh, you know, I was never in contact with this um, family member or, or household member in the um, in the time that they were infectious. Um, I think I'd be suspicious about yes. that story, <laughs> but there might be circumstances in a share house where yeah. someone's been out and about, uh, really come in at you know one o'clock in the morning every night, or they've had work shifts that simply don't cross over. Uh, but I think for, you know it's almost universally the case that a, a household member is regarded as a close contact. Yeah, okay, thanks. Thanks. I just wondered about whether or not there was any physical checking of people's capacity to uh, isolate in that situation where uh, lots of people, it's easy to say if they've got their own bathroom and bedroom, uh, but lots of people don't have. So I just wondered yeah, about it, that. It is very challenging. Um, that's why I, I, there are a couple of things in place. One is the hardship payment, and that is um, to make sure that people um, feel free that they uh, aren't going to be forced uh, to go to work uh, when we know that they need to quarantine at home. So that's one thing, hopefully, to support people to be in the house and not break quarantine in that regard. Uh, but you're right, there are, there'll be households where it's very tricky to keep your distance from others. Uh, and we do offer um, uh, hotel uh, as, a, as a, a, a kind of holiday stay, if you like, uh, if people think that they can't manage quarantine or isolation at home because there are 
you know, 10 others at home or, um, or it's a very small place or the, the traffic within the house is such that it's going to be impossible to spend all of that time in your bedroom. The, the reality is that you're most infectious in the first few days and, and what we do try and emphasise to people is um, those first few days are the, are the really critical ones to make sure that you can kind of set up in a room on your own uh, have food left outside for you, um, use a separate bathroom if, if that's at all possible and, and wipe down surfaces. But uh, you're right, it's a, it's a challenging situation and of course we do get cases that occur um, in close contacts yeah. uh, in home quarantine for that reason. Tristan, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to give Brett uh, a moment to have a, a sip of water. It won't be too long, Brett, only 90 seconds, but we do appreciate uh, all of what you're giving to us. The Chief Health Officer is with us for another 20 minutes. one 777 Professor Brett Sutton answering your questions. one 777 here on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. Positive Radio. 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. And joining us in conversation, answering your questions until nine o'clock tonight is the Chief Health Officer of Victoria, Professor Brett Sutton. Um, he is such a busy man and to give so much of his time tonight, it's a, a real, real uh, honour uh, for us to have you here, Brett. So thank you once again. Uh, plenty of questions coming through. One on the text message saying, what if you get COVID in a rental? Can your landlord kick you out of the house? I'm not... I'm not uh, an expert on rental law, but I would imagine not. I would have, I would have thought that that's, um, uh, you know, discrimination on the basis of a medical condition. Um, but I would, um, I would defer to the uh, Ombudsman or the uh, uh, Residential Tenancies Act on yes. that, I'm not I, sure. Or, or any media outlet, I think, who will publicize that that's <laughs> exactly. the case. I think we, we'd definitely have you back there as well. Um, Dave in Frankston joins us now. Dave, it's great to have you on the program. You're on with Brett. Yeah, good evening. I've just got a question. If I get a lift down the road with a neighbour, do I sit in the passenger seat or do I sit in the back seat? What's the law concerning that? Great question about social yeah. distancing. Yeah. No, no law, um, but the sensible thing to do is to sit in the back seat. You're, mm. you're in a much better position if you're behind someone uh, because obviously uh, if they're coughing or sneezing uh, and, and in the process of breathing, uh, if they are infectious, um, it's going to be more in front of them than behind them. So uh, grab a back seat and that, that'll put you at a lesser risk. There you go. You sort of feel like you're in a limo as well where you exactly. do that. That's great. Fantastic. So, uh, all right. Thank you so much, Dave. We appreciate that. Uh, Jared from Macedon Rangers is on the line as well. You're on with Brett, Jared. Good evening. Um, question to ask you. I'll put the story in, in first. I went to my local cafe the, uh, this afternoon to pick up a lunch order. And when I arrived there, I thought, well, I'll stand outside and wait till... Uh, it's only a small cafe, so I thought I'll wait till enough people have left the cafe before I head in and make sure I'm adhering to social distancing laws and there was no longer a sign that said maximum of X amount of people allowed in the store but there was saying please hit a 1.5 etc etc metres and I walked in, moved as far away from people as I could and then as I, and then as I stood there waiting to be served people just started pouring in, you would have, you would have thought it was Anzac Day, Day at the G what mm -hmm. is being done to adequately police these laws because now I'm paranoid that I possibly caught something when everyone else has come into this cafe. There you go. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the law is still in place. Um, cafes need to meet that 
density quotient of, of one person per four square metres. Uh, um, police are out and about. They're doing hundreds of checks a day, but there are literally uh, thousands of food premises and other premises that um, require checking. Uh, but there is that number for the police um, to be able to uh, report a breach. Uh, so if you've got concerns about any setting, uh, um, uh, you know, including a, a food premises, uh, then call that number. Uh, the police can, can do a check. They might provide a warning. They, they can penalise uh, businesses uh, because we do want everyone to do the right thing. Uh, it's certainly not back to normal uh, and people will be at greater risk if those premises aren't doing the right thing uh, by uh, saying, you know, this space takes no more than seven people or nine people or whatever the case may be. In fact, um, thank you so much, Jared. as well. We, we've had uh, probably three or four different texts uh, pretty much around that same sort of topic just while we've been talking, uh, Brett, as well around that. And clearly people are concerned around it. Um, is it, uh, um, you know, none of us like to be dobbers, but it seems like it's uh, appropriate to be able to actually uh, inform people. Are you encouraging to say, look, you know, or even just challenge the, the business, hey, about this? I mean, we need to be talking about it. Is that a fair and reasonable expectation for all of us to, to challenge each other in that healthy way? Yeah, that's right. It, it isn't dobbing in. Um, it, it's uh, absolutely saying this is the law. Um, we all have a responsibility to meet it. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of inequitable if... Some are playing by the rules and others are not. Uh, and, it, and it's absolutely about public safety um, uh, and protecting people from risk of a very serious illness. So um, it is about doing the right thing for yourself, um, but also for the uh, community at large. Yeah. one three hundred triple seven eight double nine is the phone number to speak to the Chief Health Officer here in Victoria, Brett Sutton. We've got Eli from Belgrave on the line. Eli, what's your question for Brett? Yes, uh, hello, Brett. Thanks for Hi, making yourself available. Um, Brett, look, early in the piece when they were discuss, uh, discussing um, COVID-19 and the outbreak of this coronavirus, there was talk about herd immunity um, and, uh, you know, just what percentage of the population would you need to get to that and what does herd immunity actually mean? Yeah, so herd immunity um, is more commonly used in terms of the, the proportion of people who need to get vaccinated uh, we don't normally talk about it in terms of people getting natural immunity to an illness, uh, but either way, it relates to the proportion of people who are required to be uh, immune through vaccination or naturally uh, by being infected in order to drive transmission down. If you get enough of the herd, so the community um, immune, uh, then there aren't so many susceptible people and if there's an infectious case out there, uh, it doesn't get to transmit at the same rate uh, and eventually it, it, it uh, tapers off or, or, or snuffs out. So, um, you know, the talk about herd immunity was what, you know, how many people would need to be infected, what proportion of the population would need to be infected for us to be able to move through this epidemic. Uh, and I think the horrific figure uh, is that, you know, it would need to be something like 70 or 80% mm. of people, uh, and that would mean literally tens of thousands of deaths, uh, if not over 100,000 in Australia. And so um, no one's talking about herd immunity anymore, or no. at least not in government uh, or in uh, amongst the public health folk. 
but that that's what the reference is to and and that's why we can't take that path because um, you know even if you try and say oh we'll protect the most vulnerable we'll let everyone else get immunity um, you would still need such a proportion of the population infected uh, that it would be impossible to protect uh, all of the vulnerable individuals. It seems like certainly even with this uh, current spike at the moment that it, that's not required either. So, No, that's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, Eli. Appreciate that. We've just had a text come through now as well from Carly saying, Hi, Brett. Thanks you for all the great work for our community. Um, are there plans to reduce the social distancing distance as has been done in other states? And I think over in the UK, they, they sort of reduced the distance as well, um, as well, or maybe not even the distance, the, you know, four, four square metres in, in an area and those sorts of things. Are there plans like that at the moment? We would love to pursue that at the, at the right time and with the right kind of levels of transmission. Um, that's not how this week is looking in Victoria, unfortunately. I know WA has gone to um, one person per two square metres, I think that's not unreasonable when you haven't had community transmission for weeks, as is the case in WA, um, but we can't afford to do that in Victoria at the moment. Uh, but we'd all dearly love to um, reduce those restrictions at, at the right time uh, when we're you know, confident that uh, transmission's been driven down enough or, or um, uh, you know, is it such a low level that we can afford to do that without being at risk of it taking off again. Yeah. Um, we've got a, a question that's come in from Kristen as well saying uh, the recovery rate seems to be very, very high. Uh, quoted 99.7%. I don't know if that is correct, but this is what she's qu quoting. She said, is there actually a need for vaccines here? Uh, that's her question. I, I think so. <laughs> Absolutely, I do. Um, the, you know, the fatality rate, the case fatality rate or the uh, proportion of people who get infected who die... Um, is probably over 1%. That is several fold higher than influenza. Uh, so if we got everyone infected, um, we would just see our ICUs overwhelmed. That happened in Lombardy in northern Italy. That, that was the case in New York. We're going to see it play out, I think, in Arizona, Texas and Florida in the next month. So uh, I would you know, ask people to turn their attention to those places that are going through uh, kind of unmitigated epidemics uh, to to see exactly what happens to the hospital system because it's pretty clear that about one in five need hospital uh, and, um, you know, two, three percent might need uh, intensive care and uh, half of those individuals will die. So that's a really, mm. really significant figure and it would overwhelm our system if we uh, just let it run. Absolutely. Uh, Natalie's texted through and has said, uh, could you please ask the professor, is saliva COVID tests as accurate as nose swab tests? Are the results quicker? Is it being rolled out through Victoria? Uh, Natalie goes on to say her kids were tested by nose swab and it certainly wasn't pleasant, was her, her question. Well, yeah, it's, it's not entirely pleasant, the PCR swab, um, but the saliva test is in pretty limited use at the moment. Um, we'll, we'll try and... Uh, work through it and see if we can uh, ramp up the uh, opportunities to use it. It's um, certainly got high um, accuracy, um, maybe not quite as high as the swab, um, the PCR swab at the back of the nose, uh, but it, it's certainly accurate enough that we can use it uh, in, in certain circumstances and we know that it's uh, clearly more pleasant than having um, having a swab uh, stuffed up the back of your nose so yeah. it just involves spitting some saliva into a into a pot it also saves us uh, on our personal protective equipment use because people don't need to have a mask when they're mm. uh, dealing with it so 
Um, we, we'll definitely explore it over time, but at the moment it's in pretty limited use yeah. uh, until we can uh, see um, how much more we can roll it out. Yeah. Uh, Tari's texted through and said, uh, Hi, Clayton, can you please ask Brett how he suggests we respond to our kids when they ask, when will things go back to normal? <laughs> Thank you, she says. <laughs> Yeah, uh, difficult, difficult. I think you have to be honest with kids. I think you have to uh, give them um, hope, uh, but you have to um, be realistic about the fact that the world's not going to look the same. There'll be lots and lots of things that everyone will have to do differently for months and months from now. Um, I think, uh, you know, there are, there are plenty of reassuring messages that you can give children, uh, including the fact that kids get... Um, uh, by and large, almost overwhelmingly, much milder illness. Um, it's very rare for children to get um, really significant illness. Uh, and so I think, you know, give, give kids those reassuring messages. Um, but you have to be realistic about how the world's going to look because they will see it play out um, mm. over coming months and, and it's not going to change dramatically. Um, there's no vaccine that's uh, about to uh, go into production. There's, a, there's over a dozen that are... Now in human trials, that's very encouraging, um, but we're some ways away from being able to make sure that it, it works and it's safe and, and we can manufacture it uh, in millions of doses. Yeah. Um, Brett, we're getting some questions too around, uh, you know, how many people in, in houses and, and those sorts of things. And the current guidelines are out there. I know there's been a little bit of discussion uh, even today uh, that's been put out that's saying, look, we, we're going to have more chats and more data coming through by about Tuesdays. Is that the time that you are expecting to, to re-look at, at what might be around some of these these decisions of how many people in houses and things like that? Yeah, I guess we, we review every day. We certainly need this um, really substantial blitz data to come through um, Tuesday and beyond. Um, I, I don't think there'll be any dramatic changes one way or another, uh, either in terms of you know, increased lockdown or, or lifting of anything. Um, but, you know, we, we've been surprised before and, and it's, it's uh, a brave person who tries to predict too far out. Uh, you know, that was clearly, um, you know, it was clearly uh, very disruptive to have to defer some of the announcements that were made for the 22nd of June. Um, and I know that, you know, it hurt a lot of businesses um, who, who moved along with an expectation that they could ramp up business when that wasn't the case. Things things changed very quickly in the few days before that. Uh, so I'd be very cautious about saying um, we'll go in one direction or another uh, without really seeing it on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Um, we've got Sarah uh, asking a question. Uh, are you using the data that does come from COVID Safe app? I ask because if a person tests positive and they've forgotten where they've been, is the data working actually to give you insights? Um, we haven't needed to at the moment. We have had, you know, over 30 individuals who've had the app downloaded. I think the reality is that, um, you know, we're, we're not back to normal, so people aren't congregating in uh, in the MCG or packed on public transport, uh, and so they're not in circumstances where they're standing next to someone for more than 15 minutes who's an absolute stranger, whose details they don't have. So when our contact tracers uh, follow up a case, all of the close contacts that we get, I think are all of the individuals who are familiar with them, it's their household contacts, it's their mates, um, the people they know they've gone out to dinner with. Uh, and so we get each and every one of those um, individuals' details uh, and we can follow up with them. So the, the COVID Safe app doesn't, at the moment, have much to add simply because of the way that we're conducting ourselves. We're not going into uh, big 
crowded settings with a bunch of strangers. Yeah. I'm guessing, though, you, you're certainly uh, encouraging people to have it and, 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 and use it so that as we do get there, it would be valuable. Absolutely. When, when we're uh, at a point, and we will be uh, eventually, um, uh, where we're all mixing together, um, if somebody does test positive or if you test positive, it'll be extremely useful for the you know, four or five people who might be uh, standing next to you in that yeah. in train carriage. Yeah. Uh, a couple of final questions for us, Brett. We've had a number of people actually uh, getting in contact, uh, asking a question which is a bit similar to this. They're, they're saying uh, for you specifically around uh, what joy have you actually found even in the midst of all of uh, what has occurred for you and uh, as you go through something that is light or something that has given you joy as you've gone through, it's coming through in a few different ways. Um, the joy of my family uh, you know, there, there've been some very tough times, um, for my team, for me personally, and, um, carrying, carrying the responsibility and, uh, nothing has sharpened my, uh, sense of love and gratitude to, um, kids and wife who are so, uh, deeply supportive of me. So mm-hmm. I think, uh, whenever I think of that, I, I can only, uh, reflect with joy um, I'm also uh, so gratified by how uh, passionate and um, caring the team are in their work to have kind of made significant personal sacrifices uh, whenever I think about, you know, how they've uh, worked so hard uh, and how they continue to be committed. Um, it, it brings a, a smile to my heart, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and final question from me as we sort of uh, wrap out this hour uh, is, you know, this organisation, this radio station is community radio station. It very deeply cares about a community. It has a, a Christian faith base to, to what it is as well. Uh, I'm sure there's be a whole lot of people who are listening who would love to say, hey, how can I help Brett? Is, is there something that I could be, you know, praying for him and for his team? Is there something I can actually be doing to help his team? Uh, what, what are the things I could do to encourage he, he and his team? Uh, what are the things that people can do to, to help the work that you guys are doing? Oh, look, I think um, I, I've heard it already. All of the thanks are so welcome. Uh, all of the prayers are welcome. Uh, I would say, you know, from a, as a public health physician, uh, amplifying the message about how to keep people safe is um, uh, is fantastic work. That's the work that I'm trying to do every day in, in getting on the radio and getting in front of the cameras. And uh, if others can reinforce those messages uh, to keep others safe, then they are genuinely doing uh, the public health work that we want um, uh, spread out. Yeah. Well, Brett, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the program and, and you know, we thank you so much for giving an hour of your time in the midst of all of this to answer so many questions. There was heaps that we still couldn't even get to that have been coming in on text and the social media, but we thank you for your time and, again, want to encourage you and your team, please pass on our thanks to them. Uh, we, we so thank you for your time this evening. Thanks so much, Clayton, and uh, to all the listeners. Good on you. Professor Brett Sutton, he is the Chief Health Officer here in Victoria. What a pleasure to have him on the program. That's it for me this evening. Have a great rest of your evening here on 89.9 The Light.